So my youngest son, Soren, uh, is living his best life right now. Uh, he's eight years old. He just turned eight uh, uh, recently that last week. And uh, it's funny. So Friday night, he went to the fair and got the wristband and rode a couple of the rides because he's a control freak. And then ate a bunch of food, and we had this really great time. And then Saturday, we woke up, and we drove down to Six Flags, and he rode, like, three rides because he's freaking out the whole time. And, and he's eight years old, so he's really like, I'm a, I'm a big boy now. I can go on rides. But we went to the little kitty rides, and he sat in it. You know the one that goes, like, 15 feet up, and then it does this, drops down? Well, he's on that ride with, like, six little kids that are probably five, and they're, they're sitting there. And, uh, and they go up, and they start dropping, and all the little kids are, like, raising their hands, and he's, like, like just locked in, and I can see he's having, like, an anxiety attack the whole time, and it was so funny, but, you know, one of the things that I love about, and today he's at a Giants game, by the way, so he's just, like, literally, I'm, like, he's going to come back and just be so bored, you know, but, but one of the things about the fair Six Flags and baseball games that always stands out as being one of the primary reasons why you go, and then simultaneously, the reason why it costs so much money is the food, right? Like, oh man, I just, I feel like I just go and take out a, you know, a small second mortgage to purchase all this food, and we were doing that, and man, I just, I had so much good food, uh, so I'm just kind of curious how many of you had a corn dog, for those of you who went, yeah, corn dogs, pretty good. Uh, how about a barbecue tri-tip sandwich? Anybody? You missed out. There's still time. It's so good. Anyway, we're in this sermon series right now that we're calling a meal with Jesus, and we're thinking about the way that Jesus used meals, used food in order to build bridges. And as you can see, we're, we're talking about grace. We're talking about community we're talking about mission. We're talking about hope and promise and salvation around the dinner table. And, and so today we're going to jump into Luke chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you're more than welcome to turn to Luke chapter 5. And we're going to read verses 27 through 32. And then really wrestle through what, what Jesus teaches us about meals in this passage. And so this is what we read uh, that Luke writes. In Luke chapter 5, verses 27 down to 32. We read, later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Later, Levi held a banquet in his home with Jesus as the guest of honor. Many of Levi's Fellow tax collectors and other guests who were there also ate with them. But the Pharisees and their teachers of religious law complained bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. You know, I think this passage is really quite fitting um, because it, Luke chapter 5, does anybody know what chapter 5 comes after? Chapter 4, this is great. You guys are getting it. This is really encouraging to me. Woo! Chapter 4, that's right. And, and so if we think about 
kind of the context of, of Luke chapter 5, um, what we know in Luke chapter 4 is that Jesus essentially launches his public ministry in Luke chapter 4. He, that's where he kind of starts it. He says, hey, I've come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And right when Jesus um, announces his public ministry, he begins to fulfill his mission right away in chapter 5. And the first thing that Jesus does in chapter 5 that we we read earlier in verse 1, is that Jesus calls some more disciples. He calls uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He says, come follow me. They're actually fishermen at the time. They're fishing, and they're not catching any fish. And Jesus says, hey, why don't you throw your nets right there? They catch a bunch of fish. And then Jesus says, hey, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And so he invites those first disciples. And then immediately after that, Jesus heals a man with leprosy. And if, if you haven't maybe heard of leprosy, you might know it's a disease, but you might not know a lot about it, but it's an infectious disease. Um, it damaged nervous systems. It would cause parts of people's bodies to fall off. Um, people would lose their eyesight. I mean, it was a really terrible way to suffer in the ancient world. Um, and so he sees this man and the people who had leprosy in the ancient world were actually ostracized in community. They weren't actually allowed to be a part of the Jewish religious circles. They were considered unclean. And so most people in the Jewish and the Roman society would look at them very poorly. And another thing about the lepers is they were victims of poverty oftentimes because it was only poor people who had leprosy. And so what we see in, in Luke 5 in that passage is Jesus heals a man with leprosy and what that means is it's very probable that when Jesus healed him, that person had ears and maybe a nose and parts of his body just miraculously grow back. And then the next thing Jesus does before our passage today is he heals a paralyzed, paralyzed man. In fact, there was a man who was paralyzed and his, his friends were so, they had so much faith that Jesus could heal them that they lower him through the roof of a building and Jesus heals him and then says um, that he's forgiven. And then right at the end of that, it says that all of the people who are watching Jesus do these things, they say, we have seen an amazing thing today. So I want to point out a couple of things to kind of set the table for our passage today, is that up until this point, Jesus has been naughty. He has been breaking a lot of rules. Jesus' first disciples were not trained theologians. They were the never have-beens and never will-bees of the day. They were fishermen, which we all know are suspect. Okay? They weren't trained. Uh, he, he does that. He, he, he invites a bunch of vagrants to be his disciples. And then he touches an unclean leper, which is forbidden by the law. And then right before this passage that we just read, he forgives a paralyzed man's sins. And all the religious leaders at the time Think, blasphemy, you can't do that. It's, it's really amazing that he's breaking all the rules. And this brings us to Jesus' meal with this tax collector. And we have to understand a few things about tax collectors to really understand why this is such a, a, a scandalous thing. Is, first of all, tax collectors were social outcasts in the first century. I mean, they essentially were viewed as traitors because they were a group of people who sided with the Roman occupiers. And so the Roman empire had, had come and had basically taken over the, the, the land of Israel and were occupying it. And so everybody in, in Israel would have looked at the, the tax collectors as traitors. 
And not only were they traitors, they were looked at as people who were on the wrong side of the kingdom of God. Because in Jewish thought, they were, they were often um, spent, they spent a lot of time thinking about the day when God would vindicate Israel and would remove the Roman oppression. And so not only were these tax collectors taking the side of the Roman occupiers, they also were on the wrong side of the God war that was happening in their kingdom. Oftentimes, the tax collectors used their position to steal money from the people too. So they were constantly stealing money from their own people. And, and so you have to understand that this is a super, this is a super scandalous moment in the, the passage of Scripture here in Luke 5. These tax collectors are partying with God. They are partying with Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. In other words, the Son of God is actually eating a meal with his enemies, and it makes a significant difference in our understanding of this text. And, and I want to talk a little bit about the scandal of grace here, because I think that's what Jesus is going to be teaching us this morning. You know, our series right now is looking at how Jesus' meals, we're looking at how Jesus' meals demonstrate and teach us about the kingdom of God. In, in the coming weeks, we're going to be talking about how the meals that Jesus had taught us about building community, how those meals also were a way of giving hope to people. We're going to wrestle with how Jesus uses the meals to be able to carry out his mission. We're going to talk about how meals teach us about salvation and promise. Um, but this meal, if this meal teaches us anything, it's about the scandal of grace. And in order to really understand the scandal of this meal, because maybe you're you're reading this passage and you're like, I don't really understand why this is such a scandalous thing. I think we have to understand the way that meals functioned in the ancient world and who ate with who. A New Testament scholar says it this way, and this is really helpful, I think. He says, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. In other words, we just do not get it. He says, mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. I mean, I, I just love that idea of how meals were a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship. A, a few years ago, we were um, visiting my, my mother and father who live in Minnesota, and my youngest sister, some of you have met her, her name's Chloe, she has Down syndrome, and she is the most sweet, excited person I've ever met in my life. I mean, she is just like always full of life. And she has this really close friend of hers named Ethie who also has Down syndrome. And they are like inseparable. They are best friends. And Ethie's Ethiopian. And her mother, who you know, was, was born and raised in Ethiopia, came over one time and she made Ethiopian coffee for us. Have any of you ever had Ethiopian coffee? Okay. You need to have Ethiopian coffee. It's like Turkish coffee. If you've ever had Turkish coffee, it's in the same world. It is just, it is so good. And it is so strong. If you have it, you will not go to sleep for a week. It is amazing. So it's amazing. But part of the whole entire process, which I thought was so beautiful, is that there's like a special 
there's a special pot that gets brought out to make it. And the water is heated, and there's a certain specific way. And it takes like 45 minutes to make Ethiopian coffee the way it should be done. But guess what's happening in that whole entire process? There's communities happening, relationships happening. And it was one of the clearest examples that I've seen where, where I was like, oh man, this is totally intentionally about building relationship. Like we're sitting there and we're, she's stirring the coffee, pouring it out, and then we drank it for a while. And after that, I was so ready to go clean the house. I was like, let's do this, right? I mean, it was really a beautiful ceremony thing. And that's kind of what this quote is getting us to, is to understand in the ancient world, meals were not just meals. Meals were not just meals. But by the time that Jesus has come onto the scene, unfortunately, the Jewish dietary laws and the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, they had made everything so detailed and they had done everything they could to create massive boundaries between Jews and Gentiles, between Jews and then people who were considered unclean. So the religion of Jesus' day was extremely exclusive and constantly reminded people that they were either in or out. So that's what you have to understand, is that in the ancient world, for people to see Jesus eating with tax collectors and these other sinners was just really, really a problem. But yet in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah had foretold of a day in the future when God would have a great banquet that included all peoples and all nations and all faces and all the earth. Yet for the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the scandal of Luke chapter 5 was that Jesus was eating with traitors and sinners, those that they deemed to be scum. Jesus was eating with those who didn't measure up to their standards of purity. Who could you, eat? you know, it's basically like, you know, uh, Jesus is eating this meal and he's, he's demonstrating the purpose of his coming. And I think that the application maybe we can think about is, is to ask ourselves who we could eat with that would demonstrate the same scandal of grace. I don't know, I mean, as I've been thinking about this passage of scripture, there's something that's been standing out to me a lot as I've been weighing and wrestling the Pharisees. And let me just say a couple things really quickly. When we read the Bible... I think we have a tendency, like everybody, to read with a particular set of lenses, meaning that we read with a lot of assumptions um, from our cultural influences. But one thing I've observed over the years is that all of us, we always read the Bible as if we are the hero of the story, okay? And here's what I mean, David and Goliath. How many of us have said, we just need to faith, face our giants? Anybody? Honestly, don't lie. We just need to face our giants. Why? Because we're David, duh. Right? And we read these stories, and we have a way of reading the stories of Jesus and the Gospels, and we don't see ourselves as the Pharisees. But we need to be willing to acknowledge that there are things that we may do, ways that we view people, ways that we live our life, that may be more similar to the Pharisees than Jesus. We need to be willing to admit that. And the thing about the Pharisees is they had essentially, as I said, created this social system that allowed them to feel superior, and they did nothing to help anybody who was outside of their circle. In fact, they were constantly judging people. The Pharisees were judging the way that others dressed. They often did what they could to oppress the poor. They were hypocrites. In fact, Jesus calls, calls them in Luke chapter 11. He says, they are unmarked graves. 
The Pharisees are unmarked graves because even though people can't see it, they were dead on the inside. Tim Chester um, kind of wrestles with the implications of this by writing this. He says, the religious elite, the Pharisees, they had created a system of moral respectability that only the wealthy could ever hope to maintain. Only the rich have the time and money to do all the required ritual cleansing. You can't be ritually clean in a slum. This was Burgios spirituality. In other words, it was like materialistic. We can do this too. Listen to this. Our expectations of clothing, behavior, literacy, and punctuality can exclude the less fortunate and the marginalized. And the marginalized. It's easy to see how the Pharisees got so much wrong in Jesus' day, but I guess my point is that I think we need to be willing to acknowledge that we might be getting some things wrong too. Amen? We might be getting some things wrong. In fact, what we see in the example of the Pharisees is that modern Pharisees do many of the same things. They're quick to condemn and they're slow to help. They're quick to, dis- to condemn dysfunctions or excessive drinking or maybe laziness, and they're not willing to always get their hands wet and, and deal with that. So the Pharisees are using meals in many ways to keep people on the outside, but Jesus uses meals to say, hey, you are invited to my party in the new creation. Come as you are. Come as you are. And I, I think we need to oftentimes really wrestle with this because it's super easy in church world to become kind of religious. You know what I mean? Like, let me tell you a really quick story. I was sharing this story the other day with somebody who did not believe that I ever wore a tie. And I was saying how when I, when I first became a senior pastor of a church, I got hired, I was 26 years old, and I, I was like, i got to start wearing suits and ties now. And so day one, I showed up, tucked in my shirt, had a tie on. Okay? And I was like, this is serious work here. Okay? And, I, and I did that for like three months. And I was just like, and I only, you know, I think I went and bought like 10 ties and I even got a suit, and I was like, I was in. And I, I think after about three weeks or three months, I was like, this is just not me. I can't do it. Just can't do it. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to start practicing what I preach, and I'm just going to come as I am, sandals and everything. And I remember I came to church one Sunday, and, and it was honestly just a personal conscientious decision. There was no thought <laughs> at all in this. It was just, I would like to be more comfortable. How many of you like being comfortable? Just out of curiosity. It's pretty nice, right? So I came, and I was, I was, I was um, just standing there, and this guy walked up to me who had, who had just started coming to our church. Um, his name is Corky, and he was a, a biker guy. And he had a Harley, and in fact, when I performed the wedding for him and his, uh, his wife, um, they actually got married, and they had a Harley at the front, and they jumped on it and rode it out of our church. It's like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> it's like, yeah, our church is pretty sweet. And, uh, but he walked up to me when we first started coming, and he said, one of the reasons why I kept coming back to our church is because I didn't wear a suit and tie all the time. And I was like, whoa, that's interesting. Why is that? And he spent some time explaining to me how in his perception, he just assumed that if he didn't wear a suit and tie, and he was like, I'll never wear a suit and tie, I wouldn't be welcomed in your church. And it was a really good lesson, and I want to be really clear. If you wear a suit and tie, you are more than welcome to do that. If you're comfortable, that's what we want. Amen? Amen? Like, that's the point, is we want people to feel like they can come as they are. But oftentimes, the way that we, we function, the way that we carry ourselves, actually is communicating things to people that we may not actually want it to communicate. And so the Pharisees were constantly doing that, and they were intentionally trying to 
ostracize people in society. The scandal of grace in this passage, though, was that Jesus wasn't afraid to eat meals with people who were judged as sinners and scum. While the rest of the religious leaders of Jesus' day were trying to figure out who they could eat with. I mean, they were constantly like, who can I, who can I eat my food with? Who is deemed clean? While everybody was wrestling with that, Jesus comes along and eats a meal with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus' meal demonstrates grace. As one theologian says it, for Jesus, doing lunch was doing theology. Jesus knew that he was teaching good theology to people as he was eating meals. For the Pharisees, meals were religious, exclusive, and unwelcoming. They were focused on fasting and grumbling and full of self-righteousness. Yet for Jesus, the meals were welcoming because they were feasts and they were places where people were able to recognize their weaknesses and wrestle with the implications of being fallen human beings. And yet Jesus kept saying, come, follow me, be my disciple. Come as you are, come and meet the one who can change your life. And those are the people that Jesus says he comes for in the end of this passage when the Pharisees say, why are you eating and drinking with such scum? Jesus essentially says, listen, I didn't come for people who are self-righteous. I came for people who recognize their weaknesses and want to experience grace. Now, just for a moment here, we're going to wrap up pretty quickly, but I want to just point out something too. If you've been following Jesus for a long time, or if you're new to following Jesus, there's a principle about following Jesus that I think Luke is also doing in this text that we need to realize. Now, I want to just acknowledge following Jesus is really challenging. Like, I feel like it gets harder and harder every single year. Is there anybody in the room that would agree? It's, it's challenging now. Like, the world is, is wrestling with questions and, and, and ideologies that maybe we haven't really had to wrestle with, but it's, it's becoming more and more challenging. That's a fact, in my opinion. And so I think it's challenging, but in its simplest form, if you want to know what following Jesus really is about, I'd say that following Jesus means that you trust Jesus more than anything or anyone else. That's what it is at the end of the day. It's about trust. Are we going to trust Jesus to be who he says he is and to do what he says he's done? And yet throughout the Gospel of Luke, we have the biblical author Luke carving out little clues here and there for you and I to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I've been following Jesus essentially my whole life. You know, my mom, and, my mom became a Christian when I was a, a young kid. I've been in church my whole life. I have, I have essentially been a Christian for as long as I can remember. And the one thing that I can tell you is that following Jesus is really hard. And oftentimes I'm like, I, I really want to know what does it mean to be a disciple? Like to truly be a disciple. This is the clue we have right here, right in this text. Look at this. After Jesus says, follow me and be my disciple, what do we see? Jesus gets up and he leaves what? Everything. He leaves everything. The same thing happened in Luke chapter 5 verse 11 when Jesus sees a bunch of fishermen. And you have to understand the implications of this. He sees all these fishermen who are trying to catch fish and they're not catching fish. And then Jesus says, throw your net over there. They throw the net over there and they get more fish than they've ever had. They are going to be rich because that's how they make their money. And then he says, hey, come and follow me. Come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And in the same verse there, it says that they left everything and they followed him. And that's what following Jesus really is about. 
is it's, it's us making the decision that we're going to follow him and leave behind all the distractions, all the things that get in the way of us having a really, truly deep relationship with Jesus. That's what it's about. And, and it's this reality of, of, of um, coming to terms with what I would call kingdom mathematics. And listen to this. This is probably the most important thing that you can ever hear in your life, is that Jesus plus nothing is everything. Amen? I mean, we don't need anything else. And that's the whole point. The disciples, both Matthew uh, here in the text, and Andrew and John and James and Peter, what they hear is this invitation to come and follow me, and they leave behind everything because they know that the one whom they are following has more to offer than anything else in the world. And it's truly the secret to discipleship. Amen. Amen. So let's think about application here for just a moment. You know, the way that we apply this passage of scandalous grace is rather simple. I don't think this is rocket science. And that's why I love the way that the Gospel of Luke builds its theology around meals. Because if there's anything I can do well, it is eat. It just feels like it's low-hanging fruit. Literally. I can do this. But the way we apply this text right here, if you want to know, how do we apply Luke chapter 5? How do we live in this reality of scandalous grace? There's two things. Number one is you need to understand that you are not too messed up for Jesus. Like Jesus has no problem eating a meal with you. It doesn't matter how, how messed up you've lived in your past. It doesn't matter how how you know, dysfunctional you are, Jesus would have no problem eating a meal with you. That's number one. Number two is that we are invited to participate in extending that same scandalous grace to the world around us. We are, in, we are invited to invite others into a place of coming to know Jesus, and we do that. We do that by inviting them into places where we can share meals together. Let's stand up together. We're going to receive communion in a moment. And um, really quickly, if you, have, if you don't have a communion packet, you are more than welcome to come forward right now and to receive one. Um, if you're like, I'm not really sure if I can receive communion here at the vineyard, I'll say two things. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome. And the other thing is if you're here this morning and you would like to experience grace, you're not really sure about Jesus, but you would like to experience grace, you're also more than welcome. What we're going to do is we're going to read a passage of Scripture this morning um, before we receive, but I just feel like sometimes we, we just do not really understand the significance of the meals that we have. And that's kind of what this, this study has been reminding me of, is that we just go fast, 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 but we maybe need to slow down and lean into... What is the purpose of, of what we're doing? Years ago, um, I was, when I was having an awakening about the Eucharist, the meal that we're about to receive, because I grew up in a church where we did it like once every quarter maybe. It was not very central to our practices. And when I started actually studying what the Bible taught about it and then understanding how for all of church history, the Eucharist was the central aspect of worship for over 1,800 years. It's like, man, why don't we do it very often? And I started wrestling with all those things and really, really leaning into it quite a bit. 
I, I came upon this story uh, about Martin Luther, the great Protestant German reformer, and and there's a story where uh, where he had such a high view of the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion, that a priest that he was working with um, actually spilled a little bit of the chalice and some of the the wine fell on the floor, and that he instantly fired that priest and then got on his hands and knees and he drank the the wine. And I was like, man, he understood the sacredness of this moment. Are you with me? Like, it wasn't just another thing. And so years ago, I'm, I'm wrestling with all these things, and I remember we were in our previous church that we were pastoring at, and, and one of my kids, um, we went forward and we got the bread and the cup, uh, the cup and the, the bread, and we were back at our chair, and, and then they accidentally spilled it on the carpet. And I channeled my inner Martin Luther And I was like, you're not allowed to receive it anymore. And as soon as I said those words, I felt the conviction of the Spirit in such a, just a, I was like, oh my gosh, what is going on? Because I I felt like the Lord just said, that's the whole point of this meal, is that we are are celebrating something as a reminder that we are all screw-ups. We're all messy, we're all broken, we all need grace. Amen? Like, that's the whole entire point. This whole thing that we're about to do is to remind us that those of us who are mess-ups, who have never have-beens, never will-bees, who, who are outcasts, who are lonely, who are frustrated, who are anxious, all of those things, that's why we do this. So this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 22. He says, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. And so this morning, as we hold up the bread, this points to us, points us to the broken body of Jesus. And so let's hold it up. And we break it together to remind ourselves of that. And let's receive grace. As we hold up this cup, we are reminded once again of the great love of Jesus. The sacrificial pouring out of his own blood to cover our sins. And let's receive now as a, as a receiving of grace. So, Father, Father, we thank you for all that you have been doing in our lives. And, Lord, as we have just read through a passage of Scripture teaching us about the scandal of grace would you help each one of us in this room to be those who would remember that grace and 
would live in that grace and would would push back against the lies from the enemy that would tell us that we're not good enough or that we aren't loved or that we are too broken to be fixed. Help us to know your love. And then, Lord, we also ask that you would help us to extend grace this week and for the rest of our lives in a way that we can help others experience the scandalous grace. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Folks, have a great week. If you have kids in the kids' area, pick them up. That'd be really great. And we'll see you next Sunday at 10 a.m.